Hello, people of the world, and welcome to today's episode of the Unity Project podcast. For those listening for the first time, the Unity Project is a podcast about the relationships we have with our bodies. Today is the day we finally get to release part two of my interview where my wonderful, beautiful wife, Kaylee, switched seats with me to be the host of my podcast and interview yours truly. In part one, I shared my experience growing up with ultra-conservative, left-behind movie era, if you know, you know, parents obsessed with thinness, trying to scare my sister and I into heaven, ultimately leading to me doing everything I could to be as disconnected from my body as possible. I went on to talk about being sexually assaulted as a teenager, being the personal assistant to an emotionally and sexually abusive boss 10 years older than me, if you know, you know and falling headfirst into an eating disorder and alcohol addiction in order to try to survive after that. We left off with me being literally paid to leave the city of Boston after being confronted about my eating disorder for the first time and dealing with unbelievably crippling depression. I really loved part two of my interview. It was awesome because I got to talk with Kaylee about what it was like recovering from the traumas that we talked about in the last episode. I get to share what it was like going to therapy, admitting myself into a treatment center, coming out, and falling in love. Ultimately, we talked about how recovery is not linear, how it's always been about connection with each other, but also connection with our own bodies, and really how important our relationships with our bodies really are. This episode is so special to me and I'm so happy to get to share it with you guys because it, I don't know, I mean, reflecting on my life in these interviews feels hard and it feels messy and complicated. So recording part two just felt really hopeful to me It felt like I was connecting dots. It felt like, I don't know, things things felt really good. So I'm so happy to get to share this with you, to get to share the light at the end of the tunnel. If you guys want to listen to part one before this episode, then I'll put a link in the description box below. Regardless, I hope you enjoy part two. Hello, everyone, and welcome back for part two of my interview with Jackie G. Andrews. Ooh. Ooh. Last name change. Didn't see that coming after getting married. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Welcome back. How are you feeling today? I'm feeling very tired today. Me too. Yeah. I'm preparing for some speeches coming up and have been rehearsing and studying past speeches all day. And so I am very tired. That makes sense. It's a lot of mental energy to prepare for those. I get to see firsthand everything you put into that. So 
Yeah, she's been sitting next to me this whole time hearing me be like, but was this okay? But was that okay? But how about this? And then she tries to give input and I'm like, but no, but what about this? That's been all day. So we're yes. good though. We're here. We are here and we are ready to jump in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Part two. Part two. So we left off last time. Right after I got back from Boston. Boston. After I was told to leave the city, to flee, <laughs> and... Banished. Banished from <laughs> the whole city of Boston. No, the whole state of Massachusetts. <laughs> Flew to the other side of the country. Um, was paid to do so. Anyway, that's where we left off. Because I came clean. No, I didn't come clean. Because I opened up about depression mm-hmm. and learned I had an eating disorder. So... Yeah, you shared about what was going on in your life and the struggles you were having. And then they said, banishment. Banished. Flee now. So, yeah. Always the response that, you know, you hope for. Yeah, I just said that and heard myself say it like Schmidt from New Girl. (laughs) Banished. (laughs) Flee. Banished. Like when he was white-fanging Cece. Yes. (laughs) Go on, get. Get. (laughs) It was less... um, Less heartwarming. (laughs) Yes, exactly. (laughs) But anyway. So after Boston, where did you go? So after Boston, I went back to L.A. Mm -hmm. And was in probably the weirdest place I've ever been in. Ever. Like, I don't know. I I just learned I had an eating disorder all of a sudden. I was just kind of kicked to the curb by my best friend in the world and her family, who was my family, because I told them about depression and my whole fear in general, um, which I think we've talked about in the first episode, but my whole big overarching fear is like, if people see the real me, then they'll leave, which is like, supposed to be this fear that you just have but isn't actually like played out in front of you but it was like literally just like happened mm-hmm. um so I was in LA and I was not really knowing what to do with all that I was still pretty Christian at the time so I was having trouble I tried going to therapy uh didn't really help that much it was okay it was okay. I got an antidepressants for the first time, which I was super scared of because in the Christian circles, it was like this whole taboo thing to be on medication to help you, I don't know, stay alive. <laughs> so, yeah, I did that. I, um, oh God, I was a mess. I got into a really weird relationship and then broke up really quickly. Just anything I could do to, I don't know make things better really quickly. Just anything to just fix it. So it was a hard year. It was a hard year. I definitely drank a bit more. I My eating disorder did not get better. In fact, it felt almost like it got, I don't know if it got worse. It got louder because I was aware of it. So I noticed it a lot more. You can, it wasn't something you could like do in secret, even from yourself. It yeah. was like, oh, this is a thing I do. Yeah. Yeah. So it was like confronting it. It was just, it was so loud and scary and worse. And I I even um, tried to get myself a puppy thinking that would fix it. It didn't fix it. 
Um, puppies fix a lot. They do not fix um, mental health crises. <laughs> yeah, I thought I was getting an emotional support dog, but it, it in another world, having a dog is great. But when you are, like, in as bad of a place as I was, trying to raise a brand new puppy all by yourself with no money and an apartment that doesn't even allow dogs, you're trying to hide that you have a dog in this apartment complex, you're in a good amount of debt, your mental health is down the tubes, you chose to get this puppy from a total sketchy creep guy on um, Craigslist who then proceeded to... Uh, change his number when something was wrong. It was a bad combo. So anyway, Phoebe's doing great. <laughs> She's living in, literally living in a house in Malibu Hills. I'm getting off topic. Yes, it was a rough year. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you were trying to feel better any way that you could, whether mm -hmm. that was a relationship that may not have been the greatest situation, uh, getting a puppy, drinking more, trying to navigate newly being confronted with the fact you had an eating disorder. Mm -hmm. um, what was your experience? You said you started kind of exploring therapy a little bit at that time. What was your experience in therapy? Mm, well, at that time, therapy was pretty bad. That's when I saw the first eating disorder therapist I saw. She was kind of whatever. The second therapist I saw was... Um, when I told her I had an eating disorder, this is an example of how therapy is great, but you have to have a good therapist. Uh, but when I told her I had an eating disorder, she looked me up and down and said I looked fine <laughs> and told me to eat blueberries and carrot juice. Like something about her brother being a nutritionist or something. She's like, it was really weird. It was really weird. If you eat blueberries and drink carrot juice, you will no longer have an eating disorder. <laughs> Be cured. <laughs> and I quote, you look fine. <laughs> <laughs> That's definitely a very um, stand-up therapist right there. She was kind of horrible. She also told me when I was telling her about a certain, like a sexual assault that had happened to me. Uh, she also told me in response to that, that some guys, and I'm quoting her, just like to try it on. And I don't want to explain what that means, so I'm just gonna need you guys to put the puzzle pieces together. But yeah. especially when they're drinking, she said, some guys just want to try it on. So that was really, that was good. That was good therapy advice. Yeah, um, yeah, talk about <laughs> doing more harm than good. That therapist uh, can go kick rocks. Yeah. Um, okay, so, after those experiences, did that kind of push you away from therapy for a while and try to find other strategies to kind of help you during that time or lean into some that you already had? Yeah. So after that happened, I after that very specific therapy session happened, I <laughs> I was driving away. I was a wreck. I like was trying not to drive off a bridge. I was driving back to my best friend's birthday party, which was probably really good that I had somewhere to go back to because all my best friends were there, like really good friends. And I had this conversation with one of the best ones and she told me, and I told her I never ever wanted to go back to therapy. I was done, I was never going back. Um, and she told me that that's okay, that I don't have to ever go back to therapy if I don't want to, that I can 
whether it's just for now or forever, like I have that freedom and I have that choice if that doesn't work for me because I don't have to. And that doesn't mean I'm doing it wrong. Mm. And that was really healing and freeing to hear because I had a lot of people telling me like in order to fix it and like you have to do the work, you have to go to therapy, like therapy, therapy, therapy. And now like big picture here, therapy is incredible but you have to have the right therapist and you also have to be in the right kind of state of mind and you have to want it. You mm-hmm. can't be forced to do it. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, you have to be patient with yourself. So um, I didn't go back for a while, but I I don't even really know what I did that was helpful. I think, um, I don't know, nothing helpful yet. But what what I will say is the more, I guess, honest I was able to get with myself about the eating disorder and depression, the more I was able to like process through that. Because I I was constantly journaling. I guess that was a helpful thing. Constantly journaling, constantly talking to um, friends of mine, like that friend who had said that to me. That was really awesome. And... Yeah, the more, the more I think I was able to, like, really connect more with myself in a really scary way at the time, but it was honest and true. And that's actually when I came out to myself, which was really cool. So I came out of the closet, which is a whole other story, but for my whole life, for multiple reasons, like, I was shoving it away. One, because, as you heard the last episode, my parents were very Christian, Um and so that just was never okay. And two, I, I was terrified and thought I was evil and wrong and broken. And I had all these ways of being as far away and as disconnected from myself as possible. So it was something that I never really had to deal with. But mm. the more honest I was getting, the more um, the more I let myself go there. Mm-hmm. So that was that was really cool. Yeah, I think that makes sense. It reminds me of not to get completely off topic but when I came out it was after I had started to really start like processing a lot of things that happened to me and some of my traumas and stuff and Mm -hmm. my therapist said it makes sense that when you're you're in a process of really starting to examine certain things and process through things and like maybe dip your toes into healing from things that you finally are in a place where you can let yourself be who you are um so I think that makes a lot of sense that you're, you, that was when you came out is when you started to, you know, kind of be with yourself in a way, even if you weren't fully in your body yet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think, um, yeah, it was also, it was also kind of a time when I started uh, deconstructing a lot of Christianity mm-hmm. things, which again is a whole other string of stories and whatnot but it definitely coincided with that in a really cool way it was also a really scary way like this was this was a time in my life I think that was a lot of scary unravelings Mm -hmm. like my sexuality was kind of an unravel it was definitely an unraveling of like things that I knew to be true but then also Christianity like I was so in it that it felt it felt like a really delicate, fragile thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of is like the second I started 
kind of pulling at the thread a little bit, it just completely unraveled. Mm-hmm. And like the second I started asking questions, like one question led to a million other questions. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I'm like, is anything true? Like any of these things that I've been basing my whole entire life on actually mm-hmm. real? And so it was scary, but it was really important. Mm-hmm. It sounds like this period of time was a lot of questions mm-hmm. and maybe not the answers yet. Yeah. So, yeah. A lot okay. of questions and not a lot of answers. That was good. Good job. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> okay. So you're still in LA at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, what happened next, I guess? Like you didn't stay in LA. Yeah. Yeah. So after, after this stuff happened, um, after I came out, I moved back to Nashville, I actually to go live with my sister. Cause she had just come out prior. And so she was like, come live with me in Nashville. So you could be like in a safe space and we can introduce you to other queer people. And it was probably one of the best decisions I could have ever made. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, when I moved out there, like it was wonderful to have that coming out experience in that community. Because mm-hmm. when you leave church also, which I know a lot of people I've talked to on here have agreed, like, and you and I as well, mm-hmm. that's a big community. That's a place mm-hmm. where it's really easy to make friends and community because they prioritize community so much that when you leave the church, it, that's one of the hardest things, even harder than, because this is something I'm still dealing with. It's even harder than like losing your faith and whatever it is God or Jesus meant to you, but you're losing um, a way to really connect with people. Mm-hmm. That's how you make, that's how you make your friends. Yeah. When you're in churches, you make them at church. Yeah. yeah. And so when I moved um, to Nashville, I felt like I had found a piece of that mm-hmm. um, with like the queer community. Cause I think a lot of, a lot of queer people um, have probably have or a lot of queer people I've talked to have similar stories, which makes sense as far as like leaving the church and having Mm -hmm. that feeling of leaving the community and stuff. And so Mm -hmm. everyone in that circle, for the most part, like a lot of people in that world know what that's like and Mm -hmm. also have that craving. And Mm -hmm. so it's kind of been special to find that in queer communities of people Mm -hmm. creating that, just that for us Mm -hmm. outside of it. So other, other than my parents, my coming out experience was really good which I'm really lucky to say, like I lost, well, I kind of skipped over this part, but when my sister came out before me, I, that was the year, that was the time when like I lost a lot of the friends that I would have lost after me coming out. So Mm -hmm. I kind of already gone through that. Uh, So then when I came out, I had already gone through the losing of those friends. Mm -hmm. So it was just my parents. And then after them, I had a pretty good experience with everything else. Yeah, it sounds like you had a nice, like, place to land mm-hmm. um, with a built-in community in Nashville. Yeah. Um, that, I think that sounds like it was really helpful. Yeah, it was really helpful. But what I think is really interesting, though, even to this day, kind of thinking before we started this interview on how to tell this part of the story, is that even though that stuff was getting better as far as, like, asking the questions, Mm -hmm. being more true to who I was as far as like sexuality and deconstruction and finding good friends again. Even though those things were happening, I was still 
having so much trouble with all the other things. Like my eating disorder was still mm-hmm. horrible. Um, I was still drinking all the time. Mm-hmm. I was still really depressed. Like all those things were still happening. So it was really mm-hmm. confusing. Mm-hmm. And so I think like, I don't know. I mean, well, I would be jumping ahead if I started to tell the reasons why I think those things are true. But (laughs) basically what happened is I started, I decided to give therapy another go, which was insane. So Very brave. Yes, Mm -hmm. yes. So a friend of mine told me that her therapist did equine therapy. And this friend also had an eating disorder and stuff. My sister introduced us because she was like, you guys have a lot in common. You both have eating disorders. And I'm like, <laughs> yay, everyone with eating disorders should be best friends. Um, so she told me that her therapist that she had did equine therapy, which for those who don't know, uh, therapy with horses, which I was just so stoked about the idea of there being a horse there. So I thought, okay, I'll give it another chance if there's going to be horses involved. Why not? Mm-hmm. So I started going to this therapist, and it was just, it was terrifying. Mm -hmm. So um, talk me through your experience, like your first session with the therapist, and kind of what your feelings were, and and what your experience was. Yeah, so I, I mean, my last experience with therapy before this lady was the therapist that made me want to drive off the bridge, Mm -hmm. told me to eat blueberries and carrot juice and guys just like to try it on so they're fine (laughs) um that's so insane to think about today so I was really scared I had a big smile because that was my thing Mm -hmm. it's just big smile I was really anxious really jittery I like I just remember smiling so big and I remember when she poked her head out of um of the door into the waiting room and like, it's like, Jackie, I just, I just can see it. I just remember her calling me back in there. It makes me want to cry because she's not a therapist anymore. So I don't get to have her anymore. Plot twist or plot twist. Spoiler alert. She was great. Um, so I went back and sat in there and she right away could tell like, I was not doing very well. It was like written all, like she's told me this since like it was written all over me. Like I was smiling so big, but it was like a very clearly of like a, not a fake smile, but like a uncomfortable, terrified smile. Yeah. And she asked me to like give her like an overview of my story, but if anything felt to if anything felt um like traumatic or anything felt really like I, like it started to I think she used the words like get me like revved up which basically just like triggered mm-hmm. for lack of better words I think people overuse the words triggered but this in this in this case it would be used correctly um anything that felt like triggering like I started mm-hmm. to feel upset about she said to just briefly tell her what it was and then we'll put it on a shelf Mm-hmm. She, can, she told me the reason why was because I had just met her. Mm-hmm. There was no trust there. I had no idea who she was. Mm-hmm. She said, and this was so important to me because the other therapist just dove right in. Like my first therapist ever was like, 
first session, let's do EMDR right now, like whip out the buzzers basically. And no, I didn't know any better. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, <laughs> no, I didn't know any better. So I was like, okay. And then just horrible. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, this, this new therapist, she was just telling me how important it is, especially for people who've experienced, well, it's important for anyone, but especially people who've experienced trauma and in my case, 99% of it was, like, relational trauma. Mm -hmm. uh, before any actual work is going to get done with a therapist, you have to trust them. Mm -hmm. And that takes time. Yeah. So a lot of the beginning of our sessions was a lot of, like, psychoeducation of mm -hmm. her teaching me what trauma even meant, teaching me about, like, um, your window of tolerance your hyper arousal state or hypo, basically fight or flight, mm -hmm. um, all that kind of stuff and all the science behind your brain. And it really helped me understand that like, oh, it all, it all makes sense and mm -hmm. I'm not crazy and I am valid and feeling this way and this is why and just like science, like science just validates things. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that seems really helpful to be able to have that foundational knowledge while you're building the trust so that once you get to the part of the therapy where you really dive into things and process things and do EMDR or whatever else, you kind of have that baseline knowledge of, you know, what's going on in my brain, why am I feeling this way, things like that. So that's really awesome. Mm -hmm. So as you're going to therapy with this new therapist that you're building trust with um did that affect you know your drinking or eating disorder at all did it have a positive impact did things kind of stay the same so that's interesting because as far as drinking the drinking stuff goes I didn't acknowledge that until like almost a year later, mm -hmm. like a, almost a year into this therapy. I didn't acknowledge it for a lot of reasons. Um, and then as far as eating disorder stuff goes, at this point in time, I would never even be able to use the word eating disorder. Like mm -hmm. I called it food stuff. Mm -hmm. And I was so uncomfortable talking about it. I barely, barely even touched on it at the beginning with my therapist by calling it like food stuff. Mm. And so I wasn't talking about it yet. And I guess, like I said, like it takes a lot of time to like build the trust with her, like mm -hmm. she was saying. So she wasn't really pushing me yet. Mm -hmm. We were still in that like, I don't know. I guess like the trust building part of it. And something mm -hmm. she said that made a lot of sense to me. Well, she said it at, the first time she said it, I thought she was weird and it didn't make sense. But then later when she said it, it made all the sense in the world. But she told me that the majority of our work or a lot of the work that we're going to be doing together, um, a lot of it is about uh, or dependent or like about the relationship that we build together. Mm -hmm. And at first I was like, what is that supposed to mean? And then later on, I learned basically the whole thing. Like, it was very dependent upon um, kind of, like, the healthy attachment that I developed with her. Like, I got to see and experience what a healthy, what healthy attachment looked like and what, like, a healthy mm -hmm. relationship looked like mm -hmm. where 
she is patient with me and where I do in time share all the hard stuff and be in like the darkest, most vulnerable place ever. And she doesn't leave and she's still there and she mm -hmm. still walks me through it and like kind of just show you what that's like. So you know how to build that in like other relationships in your life and stuff. Mm -hmm. And so, um, yeah, so it took a while for me to actually bring up my eating disorder again after that first session mm -hmm. and during all this I was still like in my own personal life nothing was changing mm -hmm. I was still doing all the drinking the eating disorder etc mm -hmm. um, the only difference was that slowly but surely once a week I would be going to this therapist where she could see through my like mask Mm -hmm. and I knew it mm -hmm. and it took a while for me to kind of let that mask down and for me to actually like be real with her about how I was feeling mm -hmm. and like really show up and really start to try to process these things and yeah like I was still every week going and doing all the things to try to disappear and disconnect but then mm -hmm. Every Tuesday, when I would show back up at therapy, it was like this relief. It was kind of like this anchor mm -hmm. to just get through the week and get to therapy. And then you get to like exhale and breathe mm -hmm. and exist. It was the place you could come back to yourself instead of running away. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It was just like I had, like if I didn't have that, I don't know what would have happened because I don't know. I mean, yeah, it was, it was. It was really important. Mm -hmm. So as you're building this relationship with your therapist and kind of growing to trust her more and things were still really hard outside of therapy and you were still drinking and your eating disorder was still prevalent, was there a point at which maybe it was like a breaking point where you realized I have to get really real. I need to open up. I can trust her now. I have to share all of it. Yeah. Yeah, so it's kind of hard to think back on it because it feels like it was gradual, but it also feels like it was really sudden. Mm -hmm. Like we started we started trying to do, like maybe about six months in, we started trying to do EMDR. Mm -hmm. EMDR is a cool type of therapy yeah. that we both love, if, if done properly. <laughs> yes. So about six months in, we started doing EMDR to kind of try to try to really get to the root of things and mm -hmm. reprocess a lot of the trauma that had happened from my family and from the people in Boston and from uh, the old boss and all the other things we talked about in part one. <laughs> um, we tried to reprocess all that. It's just, it was a lot. A There's lot a lot of things. Yeah. Yeah. And so... Uh, we were trying to do that, and it wasn't working because I would leave there, and like I said at the beginning, like, I would just go out drinking constantly. Like, I'd leave there, I would be upset about it, I, the second I started thinking about it, I would just do what I knew how to do, which makes sense, I was just mm -hmm. trying to survive. I would go out drinking with all my friends, which mm -hmm. I worked as a waitress at the time at a night, a dinner restaurant. And so if people out there have been in that world, like, you know, that's just what you did. 
Like we would work, we'd get off at like 11, maybe 12, and then we'd all go out mm-hmm. to all the bars. We were in Nashville and then we'd go home really late and then we'd wake up and do the same thing all over again. So it was just, that was the kind of world I was in. Mm-hmm. So it was easy to do and it was easy to disguise. Mm-hmm. And it started getting really dark towards the end of the year where I think depression just started to like get really, really bad again. Mm-hmm. And the drinking was getting worse. Mm-hmm. And eating wasn't getting any better. And so I went to, oh, I started getting really suicidal again. Mm-hmm. I think that's what did it, is it, that was getting worse and worse. And so I went to therapy and I realized like, I have to tell somebody, I cannot be alone in this. I have to tell her, like I have to tell her, but I couldn't talk. Sometimes mm-hmm. I feel like when um, I'm in a really like upset state as far as like being triggered or being, I don't like that word. I don't know why. It's just, I think when I'm feeling really dark in my head Uh, Sometimes I like feel like I lose the ability to talk like I feel like there's like rocks in my throat or something And so Mm -hmm. I wrote it all out in my journal and I handed it to her to read So she could just see everything there Mm -hmm. When you handed her the journal, what did she read? I don't get that real here (laughs) Jesus (laughs) Read me your journal entry on this podcast. No, but like what was what did she what did what was the message that you told her because you you said you felt dark and stuff yeah um well on paper I was writing about how much I wanted to die Mm -hmm. and writing about how I wanted to kill myself and writing about how I was like all alone in the world Mm -hmm. just dark stuff you know yeah just the usual (laughs) (laughs) um and how did she respond to that So this I remember very clearly. She put the paper down and she looked at me and she said, how would you feel about pausing life for a little while? And I kid you not, I thought she was about to take me on a vacation. (laughs) I thought we were going to go. I don't know what I thought we were going to go do, but I was like, yeah, where are we going? (laughs) Like, I really thought. We were going to go on some retreat together or um, the, dis- my mind went to Disneyland, which is ridiculous, but that's where my mind went. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I asked her what she meant and she she told me treatment. And I was just like, no way, no way. Mm-hmm. Like me? And I told her, I was like, I can't go to treatment. It, it's going to make everything too real, mm-hmm. like too big and bad and dark and stuff. And she told me, excuse me, she told me it is real. Mm-hmm. It is like a big deal and it is mm-hmm. dark and all that stuff. Like it is real. Mm-hmm. And I told her I couldn't afford to do it. Like I can't afford it. And she said, you can't afford not to do it. Mm-hmm. So that was that was world shaking. That was that just like it felt like it lifted up the sheet 
mm-hmm. and was like, this is the truth. You've been hiding from this and mm-hmm. trying to ignore it and avoid it, like barely touching your toes into it. Mm-hmm. But it was like just now it was all out there on the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you had to confront it in a new way instead mm-hmm. of just being like, oh, yeah, there's this thing. It's like, oh, no, this thing is serious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now you have to look at it. Yeah. So I had to decide if I wanted to go to treatment because I still had the power to say no. Mm-hmm. And I I don't know. When she told me about it, I don't think I was ever going to say no now mm-hmm. that I'm thinking about it. Like, I trusted her so much. Mm-hmm. And I genuinely wanted to get better so much that I, I, I was toying with it in my head. I was like, it felt like I could have said no. And like, mm-hmm. it felt like this huge decision, but I think I was always going to go when and she I said that. That's a big deal. Yeah. And so I made the decision to go. Like it, it, it kind of confirmed it when she called me to check in on me, I think like a few days later. And I just told her how tired. I was always, always so tired because I wasn't eating constantly dehydrated or hungover. Or, well, mm-hmm. that's the same. You know what I mean? Just it was. I was exhausted because I also wasn't sleeping, and I was. It was just a horrible time in my life. And so, mm-hmm. um, she told me, and I told her I still didn't know. And so she told me to imagine a world where I didn't have to zip up. Mm-hmm. which basically meant imagine a world where I didn't have to, like, pretend to be okay or I didn't have to wear, like, a mask or that kind of thing where, like, she was like, imagine a world where, like, your insides, like, how you're feeling on the inside can match your outsides. Mm-hmm. And that sounded foreign. Like, it sounded too good to be true. Mm-hmm. And that's what really got me, though, because I'm like, I I want that. Mm-hmm. And I trusted her, and she had also been to therapy when she, or not therapy, therapy, sure, but she had also been to treatment Mm -hmm. when she was younger. And she was telling me that story and, like, all that stuff. And so I decided, I decided to go. Mm -hmm. So it's very brave to decide to go. Mm -hmm. Um, How much time was between you deciding to go and when you actually went to treatment? And what happened during that time? Yeah. Um, Not that much time. I think I decided in November. Mm -hmm. And I went in the very beginning of January. I think I decided like Mm mid-November. So in between that time, I... Well, a few things happened. One was I was like living kind of like I had nothing to lose. I'm like... I'm about to basically sign my life away. Mm-hmm. So there's nothing to lose. Like, I'm already at rock bottom, so let's just party at rock bottom. So I just went as deep as I could go into rock bottom. So a lot more drinking, a lot more eating disorder. Like, it it just was, like, no holds back or no mm-hmm. bars back. What's the right word? No holds barred. No holds barred. I don't know what that means. <laughs> you guys know what I'm trying to say. <laughs> but also something that I did not mention was before this happened, like in September, 
It was when I actually met Kaylee, you, interviewing me. Me? Yeah. <gasps> Shocking. So I met Kaylee in September, and you've heard, well, we share our whole entire story on a different podcast, which I'll link in this podcast because we definitely don't have time to share that story in no, here. No, we, we told it all back there. It took like two Go hours. Go find that episode and listen to it if you have two hours to spare. Yeah. So I met her then, just to briefly explain how that fits in. Fell instantly in love, like locked eyes, world faded away. You know, all the stuff in all the fancy romance movies was real. Um, <laughs> we went in really fast. And when I started to go down downhill and decided I was going to go to treatment, I cut things off with Kaylee. I told her I can only be her friend because I was just in such a dark place that I was so disconnected and far away from myself. I didn't want anyone to connect me to myself. And Kaylee was like the only person who could at that point, it felt like. So I broke up with Kaylee and I, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay. You didn't have the capacity for anything right at that moment. Yeah. Besides just taking care of yourself. So, yeah. So that happened and I just went far off and cried a lot. But in all that, I also kind of had to confront drinking because the questionnaire for treatment asked about that. Mm -hmm. And they were like, I think the question was like, how many drinks do you have per week? And in my mind, I was like, how do you answer that? I like, that feels like, do people answer that truthfully? I was like, do people really answer that question honestly? And so, um, <laughs> some people don't. <laughs> some I'm people sure a do. lot of people probably don't. <laughs> uh, so when they asked me that, this was like on the intake stuff. I was trying to be honest because I'm like, I want if I'm gonna do this, like I want to do this. And so I don't remember what I told them. But whatever I did prompted them to ask a million more drinking questions. Because I'm assuming, like, if someone says yes to this thing, you, I mean, Kaylee's a nurse, so she probably knows. That means you're going to ask this question. And, like, is it like a tree of, like... Yeah, it's basically, like, <laughs> um, a questionnaire that if you answer yes or, like, a certain number of, of drinks or whatever, then it prompts them to ask more questions to kind of evaluate, okay, what... What is your treatment going to need to look like? Mm. And are you going to go through withdrawals, et cetera? Yes. So I ended up being on the phone for a really long time talking about drinking, which I hadn't done before. Like barely brought it up in therapy before to Amber. Barely, barely, barely. And towards the end, too, where she was like, we can't do any real processing while you're in this much of a survival mode. We just got to get you to treatment, basically. Mm -hmm. Which was really smart. Mm -hmm. But... Oh my God, I was so ashamed. This was the first like real conversation I had had about this. And so it was just like, what the hell is happening? Because it was one thing to be like, I have an eating disorder. And another thing to be like, do I have a drinking problem? Like there was a lot more shame around that, I felt like. Maybe because it was my first time talking about it. Because the first time I talked about an eating disorder, I also had a ton of shame, mm -hmm. but it just felt different. Mm -hmm. And it also felt, like, risky because I'm like, if I talk about this, are they going to take this away? Mm 
Mm. And I could not imagine not having that because I needed it so badly. Mm -hmm. And I was relying on it for, I felt like, everything. Mm -hmm. And so um, I told them all that. And they got back to me a little while later, like maybe a few days, telling me that I was, they texted me saying I was clinically and medically appropriate for residential care, which is the highest level of care where you have to live at the treatment center and be watched 24-7, basically. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, like, you couldn't even flush your own toilet, literally. You had to have a staff, like, you couldn't close the door. The staff member had to be standing at the crack in the door, hearing you go to the bathroom, and then you come out and they go in and check to make sure everything goes fine, as in, like, you didn't, make yourself throw up or things like that and then flush the toilet for you. So they then told me that I needed to do some kind of, I forgot what it was, some kind of intake thing with like a, like a rehab center for, mm-hmm. for drinking. I forgot what exactly it was, but I needed to do that to make sure I wasn't going to go through withdrawals. And that freaked me out that was the scariest thing in the world and I remember reading this while having a glass of whiskey at like 2 p.m. I was standing in the bathroom I remember looking in the mirror with a glass of whiskey at 2 p.m. reading this text oh my god I was so scared and so I don't really remember what happened after that other than I did whatever the intake thing was and I wasn't at danger for withdrawals, so I was able to go to treatment. So you kind of talked us through what happened between deciding to go to treatment and going to treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, Tell me about treatment now, I guess. Like, what was it like getting there, your experience? I imagine it was probably a huge culture shock. Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess just walk us through that. Yeah, so basically, um, it was horrible. (laughs) Um, When I first got there, I walked in, and everybody knew my biggest secret. Because, like, if I haven't made it clear already, like, I didn't like to talk about real stuff with people. I didn't want anyone to know anything. And so, when I walked in, everybody knew my biggest secret because they were all there for the same thing. We were there because we had eating disorders. And also, um, substance addiction. Not all of us had a substance addiction, but a lot of us did, which I found out later is just very connected. That's mm-hmm. that's a whole other thing. An eating disorder acts similarly in your brain as an addiction. Um, so a lot of the times they kind of ping pong back and forth. Mm-hmm. And also, the majority of us were queer because people treat queer people historically like shit. So, we've got trauma for no reason other than we are humans that have feelings. I'm going to edit that part out. Yeah. Yeah, all of the things are... <laughs> all of, I don't uh, know how I'm going to edit that, but I'm, maybe I'll leave it in. I'll leave it in. <laughs> It's true. Um, So all of the things are kind of interconnected. So when you show up, everybody knows you have an eating disorder and you may or may not have substance addiction. Mm -hmm. 
and you but you feel very exposed because you're used to being able to hide behind whatever mask that you put up. Yes, yes. So I felt very, exactly what you're saying, I felt very exposed. Mm -hmm. And I was really scared. And I thought, I'm going to give myself two weeks to get through this because this place, like, one, it took away all my freedom. And my freedom, I wanted, my freedom was so important to me. Mm -hmm. This was as structured as it gets. Like, we don't, we do everything as a little group. We have, are being watched, we're being watched 24-7. We have to eat mm -hmm. as a little group. We have to write about our feelings after we eat. If we don't finish eating this meal, we have to write about why and drink a supplement group or supplement drink. Uh, so we have three meals, three snacks a day, and then we had four therapy sessions and I think two or three dietitian mm -hmm. sessions and one psychiatrist session every week and small groups all day, every day. It was just, it was insane. It was absolutely insane. And I, I, for being someone who didn't want to talk about my feelings or in that scenario, make friends or I just wanted to get through it. It was so shitty. It was mm -hmm. horrible. They wouldn't even let me drink coffee. That was the last straw. Like we had to have coffee well, okay, they let us drink coffee, but there were coffee privileges. If you didn't eat all your meals, you lost your coffee privileges. What the hell is that? I was so, I, I was so mad. Sorry, I still get mad thinking about that. They just, they, they took everything from you. They took your phones, they took your car keys. Yeah, you, it was kind of like a lockdown situation. You had very little choice in anything. You chose to be there, but beyond that, you kind of got all autonomy stripped away for a period of time. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, so I was there and I hated it. And I, I was so, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. And so I remember going up to, oh, also before I get to this part, um, Every day it felt like the people I was living with were getting taken away to the emergency room. Like ambulances were coming multiple times a day, mm -hmm. taking my friends because um, they threatened to, they just were like a, I, I don't know what the appropriate way to say that is. Were there people in medical crisis or were they in mental health crisis? Mental health crisis. Okay. Yeah. So they were getting taken away to hospitals. Um for a psychiatric hold, probably. Yes, yes. That was for all of them. Well, mm -hmm. a couple of them not. A couple of them it was medical. Mm -hmm. It was just high drama. Mm -hmm. It was really scary. Mm -hmm. And I went up to the admissions lady and I demanded to discharge. I said, discharge me. Give me my car keys. I want to go home. There's no way to heal in an environment like this. And she was like, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> hold on a minute. <laughs> We talked for a while and she ended up telling me, she was like, if you can't heal in an environment like this where your only job is recovery, like everything is taken care of for you here. Everyone here is here for your recovery. There's therapists everywhere. Everyone is going through what you're going through. How do you expect to heal out in like the normal world? She was like, you tried that. It didn't work. Mm -hmm. That's why you're here. Mm -hmm. Like how how is that going to work? And it was, she was very straightforward about it. And I needed that. Um, 
But anyway, I it got it got through to me. She got mm-hmm. through to me, and I decided to stay, and slowly started to let my walls down a bit and tried to to do it. I thought if I'm gonna be here and get out of here, I need to do the damn thing. Mm-hmm. So I started to make friends, and it was really weird. I started to. I don't know. I guess I learned for the first real time what it was like to like have people know every single dark thing about me and like stay Mm -hmm. and come closer. Mm -hmm. And I learned what it was like to have, I don't know, drinking was taken away from me, obviously, for the whole time I was there. I was eating three meals and three snacks a day because I could not lose coffee privileges, obviously. And also, I wanted to get better. But coffee helped. Dangle a coffee carrot over Jackie's (laughs) nose, and she'll do just about anything to keep that coffee coming back. It's important. It's important to me. Anyway. um, Yeah, so I learned that, like, it's possible to have all my feelings out there, to not be making everyone constantly laugh, to be crying all the time, and not having any access to alcohol, and eating food mm-hmm. regularly, like normal whole meals, mm-hmm. and have friends and be okay. Mm-hmm. It's actually, you have better friends and like real friends because they see and know the real you and you're not just sending this shell of yourself out there. Mm-hmm. And so the moment that that hit, it was like, that was it for me. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay. So that's when things started to like click and make sense. And that's when I started to really like it. Like I liked treatment and not everyone had that experience. And I had, I think, a really positive treatment experience. Mm-hmm. Lots of people, even people that I was in treatment with, had really bad treatment experiences. And I think there's a lot that's messed up about how treatment and obviously um, healthcare and stuff is Mm -hmm. specifically in this conversation, like mental health treatment centers and stuff. There's a Mm -hmm. lot that's messed up about it, but that's a different conversation. But just so that's clear, treatment is definitely not a perfect system, Mm -hmm. but I had a good experience in it. Mm -hmm. So yeah. And I started to realize like, Oh my God, I have all this energy my brain's working. I am like awake. Mm-hmm. And I remember people asking, they were joking, but they're like, what drugs are you on? And I'm like, I think I'm just eating all my food. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really working. Mm-hmm. Because like when you're not eating, your brain actually shrinks, mm-hmm. which I learned there. Like your gray matter in your brain goes away and your body's not, like you're not giving your body anything. So you're not, you don't have what you need to, be a person. Mm-hmm. So they taught us a lot of that science-y type stuff in treatment, which was really, really helpful. That kind of laid out the facts for me, which mm-hmm. gave me what I needed to be like, okay, I want to do this. Mm-hmm. But anyway. Yeah. Um, you talked a lot about making friends, and I know that something that you feel really strongly about is through your journey um, with your eating disorder and with discussing you know your alcohol use I don't know how to talk about that that's fine okay um 
I'm going to have to restart my question. That's okay. Okay. Um, so you talk, you, you were talking a lot about how you were making friends and in an environment where you didn't really necessarily have your coping mechanisms you were using outside of treatment. Um, and I know something that you've talked a lot about through um, this podcast and through, you know, your various speaking engagements and everything is you talk about connection a lot. Um, can you kind of, I guess, connect the dots for us? <laughs> okay, Lee. So sorry I had to do that. <laughs> so you're asking me about connection? Yeah, where does t connection land in all of this? Because I know that's like a really big topic that you like talking about. So connection was pretty much, it felt like the whole point. Like, I could—I don't think I could have gotten through, well, it wouldn't have worked without connection. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no therapy without connection. There's no treatment without connection. Like, the same, somewhat of the same thing, like, my therapist that told me to go to treatment said about how our relation, or our my therapy experience has a lot to do with our um relationship more than anything else it's like healthy connection and so mm -hmm. seeing in treatment that I was building these connections with people while I was healing mm -hmm. was basically rewriting the script in my head of like if you show up fully in a messy way people will leave like you'll get mm -hmm. shipped to the other side of the country mm -hmm. you'll be banished from Boston banished yeah like, it helps, and, like, nothing can make that go away. Right. But it helps make new, it builds new experiences. Mm -hmm. It showed you that a new narrative was possible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it showed me a new narrative was possible. And I also learned that it, kind of before treatment, it was it wasn't impossible, because I did, I don't want to take away from the fact that it did have very good friends before treatment like the people's birthday party that I went to after that first therapy gone wrong experience the ones that told me it was okay not to go like I had some incredible friendships so I don't want this to take away from that because that's not the case um but it is incredibly hard nearly impossible to connect with other people if you are so disconnected from yourself it feels nearly impossible to connect with other people if you are so disconnected from yourself. And that's what an eating disorder or addiction is, mm -hmm. is disconnecting from yourself. It's finding ways to be as far away from yourself as possible. And everyone has their own ways of doing that. Those were just my ways of doing that. And the reason is because it, was, it wasn't safe to be in my body mm. for lots of reasons, for part one of this podcast mm -hmm. and a little bit of part two, mm -hmm. it wasn't safe. Mm -hmm. And I was doing what I needed to get through it, which mm -hmm. was being as far away from myself as possible. Mm -hmm. And so I think treatment taught me that I was safe, that it, I didn't have to disconnect from myself. I didn't have to be away from myself. Like, like learning that I could be in my body enough to be present, to be eating, to not be drinking, and I was still okay, and I was still loved by the people around me. Like, I needed that proof. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it was It was all the whole time. It was about, 
it was about connection. Mm-hmm. I think it's really powerful that you were able to kind of show yourself that there is an, another way that things can go with building connections and people staying and being able to be in your body and still be safe. Um, what was your experience carrying that as you discharged from treatment and how was discharging mm-hmm. and kind of entering the world in a new in a new way with a new set of tools and um, yeah yeah so discharging was really scary because well I had just made all these really incredible friends that I just went on like deeper levels and I had. Mm-hmm before I felt like and these friends that like it almost felt like this little safety bubble like I was in this bubble it was really scary and heartbreaking to leave that because it just brought up a lot of stuff of like it's very different but it felt similar to the narrative of oh you were really honest and upfront now you have to leave Mm -hmm. Boston basically but I knew it wasn't that Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to rewrite that in my head of like, no, this is like a healthy leaving. Mm-hmm. This is a good leaving. Like nothing bad happened. You were not being kicked out. Mm-hmm. This is like a healthy attachment, basically. Mm-hmm. So it was really scary because I didn't know if I would have been. A- I I didn't know if I'd be able to do it because I at this time knew so many people that I was in treatment with. That was like their fourth or fifth time there. Mm-hmm. Like like I said, it's a very flawed system. So a lot of people end up going back. But when I left treatment, I went to live with uh, my best friend who I was living with right before treatment. And da 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 da. Me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I was going to move in with Kaylee and our our best friend at the time. And this is going to get into our story a bit, too. So for an extended version of this part, go listen to our story episode, which, again, is linked in the description box below. But basically, I went back to live with them and had told Kaylee again I didn't want to be with her. But then when I got home and I saw her for the first time since being home, well, since 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 before before treatment treatment. yeah Mm -hmm. I realized how I was wrong and I was like JK please love me (laughs) (laughs) long story short um, we ended up getting together Mm -hmm. and getting married here we are they were roommates that's how it started (laughs) that's how it always starts in queer world but in all realness um I think the reason it was such a positive experience coming out of treatment and the reason I didn't go back was 100% because of the support system I had coming out of there. Living with you and our best friend and having our other best friends um, together, like all of you guys, I was so lucky because you guys cared so much about me and you cared so much about my recovery mm-hmm. and you knew what was going on. You especially knew what was going on. And so I couldn't hide that. And again, like we said at the beginning, like once you know something's a problem, actually, I don't think we were saying this. I think I was talking the other night with, anyway, 
once you know about something, like once I knew drinking was an issue, I couldn't unknow it. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, it's just like I could not be honest. And so being in that environment with you guys was so helpful because I felt like I had the safety to talk about it, the safety to mess up and to talk about it, and the connection with you. I just I would it wouldn't have worked outside of that. Mm-hmm. That's also when I decided to stop drinking was after treatment. I was about to start going down that tunnel again, mm-hmm. but had that sense of like not like I know better, but like I can't I can't hide from this again. Like that's just going back to where it was. So and I also started going back to therapy with that therapist I had before treatment, the really awesome one. And we were able to actually do really good, like, reprocessing trauma work because I was in a stable place, because I was eating and because I stopped drinking and because I was in a safe home environment. We were able to actually do EMDR and actually reprocess stuff because I wasn't in constant fight or flight mode. Mm -hmm. That's something really important that I learned. Like, before you can actually reprocess and heal from trauma, you have to be stable, which is kind of like the... um, the treatment process, that's why they start you in residential care, because that's just to, like, stabilize you. But the mm-hmm. real work you start doing doesn't happen until you step down to PHP, which was partial hospitalization, where you live in your own apartment, and then you go into treatment. It's, a, it's unnecessary to explain all that. But, it like, it's important to be stable first, meaning, like, nourished and not hungover mm-hmm. and in a safe environment. Mm-hmm. before you could do the reprocessing. So that's when I was able to actually start reprocessing stuff and do good work. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's hard to reprocess trauma when you're in fight or flight, mm-hmm. when you are you are just barely surviving. You need to be able to be in a place where you can actually sit with what you're trying to reprocess instead of just that survival mode. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. So what, I know that a lot of time has passed since you discharged from treatment, but what has your relationship with your body looked like since then? I mean, I guess that, like I said yesterday when you asked me about my, yesterday, I guess what I said in the first part when you asked me about my relationship with my body, like, it's definitely not perfect. It's, I have a lot of good days and a lot of really bad days, and I think I don't know. I was always imagining like life after treatment or like recovery as like, oh, you're all good now. Body positivity. You love your body. You're flaunting it and loving it all over the place. (laughs) But that's just not true. It's hard still. I think the, the the good things are that I'm aware now it's incredibly hard to hide from myself now. Like I know... I know the true things. I know what's true, I think is helpful. Like I know what is real Mm -hmm. versus what's like not real. Mm -hmm. And it's helpful that I have you, Kaylee, to remind me of what's real and have the freedom and know that it's okay that I still have the hard days that like sometimes I'm going through a bad, rough eating disorder period. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes I have like a depression-y period. But what's different now is that I know it's okay and I'm not going to be 
kicked out of the city for mm-hmm. it or you're not going to dump me because I'm depressed. <laughs> Honestly, though, it, like, is – that, like, happened. Anyway. Um, yeah, yeah. just just knowing that that's okay mm-hmm. and knowing that it isn't linear. People mm-hmm. say that all the time, so it sounds cliche, but recovery is not linear. It really isn't. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and now, now I know, now I know it is so connected to your relationship with your body. Mm-hmm. And now I know that, like, probably my biggest takeaway from treatment and everything is that our bodies are really wise mm-hmm. and they know what we need. Mm-hmm. And if we're hungry, it means we need to eat. And if we're tired, it means we need to rest. And like I spent so long tuning out that voice that I stopped hearing it. Mm-hmm. It's so it's like my body like stopped talking to me. Mm-hmm. It's like you're not gonna listen anyway. Mm-hmm. And so when I started listening again and actually like acting on it, the the more I did that, the more I could hear what my body was saying. Mm-hmm. And that's actually why I started the podcast um, was because one of the first questions they asked us in treatment, it was like one of the first days was to write down a letter from you to your body and then a responding letter from your body to yourself. Mm. And it just like opened up my eyes to this whole world Mm -hmm. that I didn't know was there. That's really powerful. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think that it's really powerful to know that your recovery doesn't have to be linear, not to set yourself up for this like unrealistic expectation that, you know, oh, I went through treatment and I'm never going to have any struggles ever again because that's not real life. Mm -hmm. And knowing that it's okay when you're having a hard time and that you're not alone in it that you have people you can talk to about it and that you aren't, you, you don't have to hide anymore. I think that's really powerful in a healing journey is to have at least one person who you can show up 100% fully yourself and that can kind of be there for you when you're having the hard days and when you're having the good ones. And that's like, oh my gosh, look at you. You ate like the you ate the cake. I'll always eat the cake now. It's yeah. So good. <laughs> and like, and having that so that you have your victories celebrated and your hard days, you're not alone in them. Yeah. Thanks, well, Kaylee. Yeah. Well, was, I always love hearing your story. I think that it's just, I mean, a true story of courage and of showing up for yourself and I'm gonna cry and just being willing to do the hard work that it takes to love yourself the way that you deserve to be loved and that in turn lets other people love you oh you're crying for real (laughs) (laughs) you heard it here first folks (laughs) but I love you and I'm so proud of you (laughs) and thank you for being so open and sharing your story I know there's a lot that wasn't shared because we only have a certain amount of time but 
I think your vulnerability and courage is so admirable. I love you. You're a great host. Oh, thanks. Yeah. I had big shoes to fill. Well, <laughs> mine. Yeah. <laughs> big shoes to Just fill. Just kidding. <laughs> You gotta ask me a would you rather question. Oh, would you rather? I forgot about would you I know, rather. I kind of stopped doing it too, but just uh, for this one episode. Okay. Um, okay. Would you rather every time you left the house and were outside? So any time you were outside, you had like a flock of chickens that just landed on your arms, <laughs> and you had to like carry them with you until you entered another building. They just were with you. And then they would disperse as soon as you got in the car or as soon as you went inside somewhere. Okay. Or you had <laughs> a little trail of chipmunks scurrying behind you everywhere you went, even inside or outside. Definitely the chipmunks. Okay. <laughs> Big time the chipmunks. Because every time I've ever picked up one of our chickens, poop. All over me. Always poop. What if there was no poop? What if they did not poop when they were on your shoulders? And your arms. Uh, it's only outside. It's only when you're outside, but the chipmunks are with you everywhere, and it's like 50 of them just trailing behind <laughs> okay, you. The chickens, because that's creepy. <laughs> <laughs> they just think that you're their mom. You want to go to the bathroom? Yeah, they just follow you everywhere. Want to take a shower? Are they just in there washing everywhere. their little faces? Yeah, they're if in there was, showering too with their little hamster legs. Like, like three, scrubbing their that would be cute, but like 50? Yeah, well, that's maybe an not 50. <laughs> maybe not 50. <laughs> maybe like 12. A good dozen. And it's like 12 chickens, too. Could I, like, close the door on them for certain situations? Just, like, knowing they're outside the door, like, Ben, it's, Ben is constantly following me everywhere. Can I just, like, close the door on them? If I need privacy for, like, 20 minutes? Sure. I think the, the chipmunks. That's really cute. Yeah. I love but chickens. But they poop everywhere. I'm just kidding. <laughs> Bennett will clean that up. Oh, that's disgusting. She would. She would. Okay, but you don't want, you would want the chipmunks following you everywhere. 12 chipmunks following you everywhere, except in situations you needed full privacy, you could close the door on them. And they're just waiting out there. Or wrangle them into a little, like, container. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like, I really, just the idea of having chickens on me. Like, if they were following me everywhere, that'd be different. But if they're, like, on me all the time. What if it was one chicken on your head that may or may not poop? Can it? No. <laughs> no poop. Can it be on my shoulder? That uh, if it's on, on your head. shoulder, it has to be more than one because you have two shoulders. So it has to be at least two chickens. <sighs> Chipmunks. <laughs> all right. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> if anybody has 12 chipmunks they want to donate to our cause, we'll have them follow Jackie around 24-7. What would you pick? If the chickens weren't going to poop on me, I would probably pick the chickens. That sounds funny. <coughs> More than Alvin and his chipmunks. Mm -hmm. Wait, do any of these animals talk to me? Mm -mm. No. Okay. Okay. My tentative answer is the chipmunks. Yours is the chickens. We're married, so we'll have both. Yeah, sounds good. Anyway. Well, thank you, everybody, for joining us on this wonderful podcast. Yeah. If you want to follow me, you probably can at TV. Oh, excuse me. If you want to follow Kaylee, it's at Kaylee and, no, Kaylee424. 
<laughs> okay. If you want to follow Jackie, <laughs> you can find her at JackieG.TV. And if you would like to follow me, it is at Kaylee424. Amen. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening to the Unity Project podcast. If you guys enjoyed what you heard, please feel free to subscribe anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you want to stay connected and get updates on my future book and old books and speaking engagements, etc., you can follow me on Instagram at JackieG.TV. All of those links will be in the description box below. Thank you so much, and we'll see you next time.